HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and Three, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season. This is kind of like terrible comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka, if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do we know why they put a baby in the cake yet? You'd better be careful where you get that cake because your friends and coworkers in New Orleans are going to have an opinion about it. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tema food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a still mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Mark Crumpy who is a chef and owner of Southern Hospitality Kitchen in Lafayette, Louisiana, and Emily Grumpy, his daughter. And Mark has a unique relationship with Japanese cuisine through his wife's heritage. His interest in Japanese food has developed over time, and he now beautifully incorporates Japanese and Southern American elements on his dishes. Mark is also a chef devoted to sustainability. So today we'll discuss Mark's unique family background, how he studied Japanese cuisine, how he naturally integrated Japanese and Southern American cooking together, his efforts to be local, sustainable, and global at the same time, and much, much more. But quickly, before we start, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. And I have a quick announcement. So... I wrote a book about Japanese food, and it came out in Japan in December last year. Now, and it's available worldwide on Amazon website. It is called A Complete Guide to Japanese Cuisine, and the Japanese title is Ego de Gaido, There are two titles because it's written in both English and Japanese side by side. And the book is a mini, a mini encyclopedia of Japanese food, and it covers 90 dishes, sweets, and beverages with fun facts along with the foundational philosophy and history of Japanese cuisine. And each dish has a beautiful picture. And you can bring the book with you on your trip to Japan or to your favorite Japanese restaurant as a guidebook. And if you work at a Japanese restaurant, it can be your go-to reference. Also, if you are already familiar with Japanese food, the book is useful to explain the basics of Japanese food accurately to non-Japanese people. Or it can be a fun textbook for both English and Japanese language learners. It is available worldwide on the Amazon website as well as on as well as uh, in bookstores in Japan and some bookstores outside of Japan such as Kinokuniya. 
Again, the title is A Complete Guide to Japanese Cuisine and in Japanese, 英語でガイド外国人が一,一番食べたい和食救助して I hope you will enjoy reading it. Now, let's start a conversation with Mark Crumpy and Emily Crumpy. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi, Emily. Hi. So,、um, first of all, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? So, I was born in Lafayette, Louisiana, and、um, my parents split when I was younger. So, at my mom's house, who was born and raised in、um, that area, we had a lot of rice and gravy probably、mm. every day and、um, just braised meats.、Um, that's the thing about Cajun cooking, and there's a lot of long cooks from、mm. the French heritage and braised vegetables, and they kind of cook the crap out of everything.、Right. And then,、um, My dad was from Ohio and lived in California for a while, so it was kind of all over the place with him. He would、um, do fresh noodles for Stroganoff from like, his, grandma, his grandmother, his mom from Germany, and、um, he would make、um, corned beef hash. That was probably his favorite breakfast.、Wow. And、um, then he would bring me traveling a lot, so I got to eat a lot of cool things when I was younger and kind of broadened my horizons.、Um, Early on, kind of、mm. got me started really loving different cultures, cuisines. Wow, what an exposure! Yeah, yeah, you're lucky because I, my, in my case, my、uh, parents are really only eating Japanese food yeah, mainly, yeah. so <laughs> yeah, it was everything was new to me as I got older. But、um, so that's how you got into cooking, yeah. I, as,、um, as I think about like my childhood memories, I kind of attach a lot of them to food and taste and different places we went. So early on, I just really enjoyed being in the kitchen with my family, cooking dinners and just having like family over and parties. And、um, I never thought about it as a career. I just thought it was a you know, means to an end when I finished college, just working in kitchens and、um, trying to make my way through school. And I didn't really, really think about it until halfway through college when、mm. I was like, man, I could probably do this for a living. Wow. I dropped out of college and went to culinary school.、Mm, so there was a moment like, wow, I'm good at this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. What was the dish or something that experience that sparked yourself?、Um, it, it was my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time,、um, kind of、uh, gave me the confidence, like, you can do this as a career. And when I moved to Austin,、um, I met some really cool chefs, and、um, I think it was after I ate at、um, Uchi Austin.、Mm-hmm. It was right when they opened. And、um, after that meal, I was like, man, I would love to do this for a living.、Mm. Um, just like the memory of that dinner and all the other memories I have, I was、um, thinking, like, you can be a part of someone's life without ever meeting them. Like, they have a lasting memory of something that you created for them.、Mm. And I just. And I really enjoyed that. That's interesting. Right. It's almost like cultural experience. Yeah, yeah,、right. exactly. Yeah, but Uchi is very, it's not Japanese, Japanese. That's another、oh, yeah. beautiful a, part of it. Oh, yeah. Right. It's,、um, he integrates so many different flavors and techniques, and that's, that's why I loved it so much.、Um, mm. It was just really cool how he could take all these different cultures and put them together and have a successful restaurant. Right. So,、uh, I heard you also studied、um, culinary arts, the Texas Culinary Academy. Yeah, at Le Cordon Bleu in Austin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you have a kind of French technique. Yes. Right. So, that's, that's, what, that's what I enjoyed about going there. It kind of gave, gave me a good basis of like mother sauces and techniques and、mm-hmm. stuff like that that I hadn't quite learned everything yet. Right. So, probably that would give you confidence that、yeah. I know the basics. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, and、uh, so before you became the chef and owner of、uh, Southern Hospitality Kitchens, which we're going to talk about in a moment, you started a restaurant specializing in French, Japanese,、uh, New American Thai cuisine. So, why so global?、Um, I just, just, I guess, from my childhood and traveling,、um, I just really loved all these different cuisines and like. How much you could learn just from one cuisine and techniques, and you go to another, and there's this whole other like spectrum of flavors and ingredients. And and I had my oldest daughter at the time, well, second oldest, and、um, I couldn't really afford to work at the cooler restaurants or smaller restaurants. So 
on my weekends and days off, I would go stage. Mm. I would pick like a Japanese place or a French one, or there was this really cool Ethiopian one I loved going to as well. She would have her spices brought in by her cousin wow. in Ethiopia, like every three months. Mm. And, um, I just, I just really enjoyed it. And it was just amazing to see you could experience someone's culture just by sitting mm. in the kitchen with them. Right. Interesting. So the concept of like people negatively think fusion and I don't like the fusion. Fusion yeah. is like confusion people say. Yeah, yeah. But the way you grew up naturally um, surrounded by different flavors yeah. into one table. And and I had another discussion with New American chef. Yeah. And he said the beauty beauty of New American cuisine is that you can do anything as far as you're yeah. responsible for the taste. Yeah. That really well said. That's what I love about it. Right. <laughs> so um, so, so in 2013, you became the chef and owner of Southern Hospitality Kitchens. So what is Southern Hospitality Kitchens and how do you get become the chef and owner of that? So um, I was working at the time in Austin, Texas and um, a restaurateur from Louisiana was interested in bringing me over there to help him grow his brand and open some new restaurants and concepts. and. Uh, they came and visited me in Austin and I showed them around and it was a really good opportunity for me to kind of springboard my career and become a chef owner and learn new things. And this restaurateur has been around since the 70s. Mm. So we got together and um, it was a great fit and we started Southern Hospitality Kitchens and he already had a restaurant that had been open since the early 80s, Charlie G's. So um, I bought a small ownership in that, and we kind of started from there, and that's where we opened Social, which is like my baby. That's what I started from the ground up. Mm, right. So we have uh, the Charlie G's, which is a kind of a grilling aged beef, freshly jammed. Yeah, seafood. it's like a, a fine dining steak and seafood restaurant with like Creole influences. Mm -hmm. Right. And the top room, that's... Like wings, hot dogs. Yeah, it's like American. your typical um, American bar, 50 taps, mm -hmm. bunch of whiskey, um, decent food for a bar setting. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> and they have a Pete's that's like yeah, that's makeup the, sports. That's and... like the family sports bar. That was another one that's been around since the 80s, and we kind of took over and tried to revitalize it. A um, mm. place for people to bring their families and kids and eat and drink. Right. So out of the four restaurants, so, uh, Social Southern Table and Bar, that's kind of your playground? Yeah, yeah. Where you are. Yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, so Louisiana is a very special place with micro cultures. Yes. And uh, so what is unique about Lafayette versus like plates like New Orleans? So, yeah, Lafayette's different um, as far as, like I guess, Cajun and Creole cooking go. In New Orleans, you have more of the um, Caribbean influences and the Spanish influences from the slave trade. Mm. And um, Lafayette is was started by the Acadians from Canada, so it's heavy French influences. Mm. So you have a lot of braises and um, a lot of um, like whole animal cookery. And they were you know poor people, so they tried to use it everything they could mm, which actually makes everything delicious more oh yeah <laughs> better it definitely than does <laughs> <laughs> right oh i didn't know that so that's why it's more like yeah. heavy braised exactly yeah. long time cooking mm -hmm. interesting um so um what's a classic uh lafayette style uh, <sighs> like examples of cuisine? classic lafayette style cuisines i guess i'd have to say crawfish etouffee um which is just like a, you know, crawfish and gravy. It's got the holy trinity of Cajun. Uh, it's celery, onion, and bell peppers cooked down with garlic and stock and make a roux with it over rice. So it's a lot of rice and gravy. Um, mm. Gumbo there is different from New Orleans. Um, the gumbos in New Orleans I find to be a little darker, heavier. Um, and what's another uh, Cajun dish? Yeah, you got your shrimp okra in New Orleans. Yeah. Jambalaya. Yeah, jambalaya is another one. And yeah, um, there's a Mark's friends here, so Travis, I get. And uh, the the boucherie is probably a first time I experienced something like that. Mm. Was in Lafayette. Okay. Kind of everybody gets together and you um, 
kill a pig in the morning and everybody breaks it down and everybody has their different stations oh, and wow. you make all these different things with the entire animal mm. um so yeah that it's just uh it's just a, the diff, the flavors are just completely different mm. um it's it's almost hard to explain until you really taste it um but yeah it's just a lot of braised items with a lot of rice and gravy mm. right so the of course, Japan is a country of rice, but yeah. the rice, in a way, um, in the south, it's used to absorb yes. the braised liquid, yes. which is That's rich. what I loved about, it's the first time I had, like, really good um, Japanese, like, short grain rice. Like, the flavor of it, and just on its own, was amazing. Mm. It helped, like, highlight the fish. As a, Back home, it was more of, like potatoes and gravy is just there to soak mm. everything up and eat together right so regular rice used in the south that's a long grain or? yeah and um but lately we've been having more i guess um smaller production farmers coming up with different rices like the louisiana popcorn rice mm. what it's is absolutely... that? so it's from a uh i guess a rice grain from i want to say thailand maybe and um it has this specific popcorn flavor and smell. Oh. So if you're standing at the rice fields and the wind blows, it smells like buttered popcorn. Oh, wow. And when we cook it in the restaurant, the whole kitchen smells like buttered popcorn. Oh, wow. So it adds a whole another element to the dish rather than just being there as a vessel to hold the gravies. Mm. So is that a new grain, like new crop hybrid or ancient? Yeah, it's a hybrid. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Wow, and I want to try that. the local grain with the uh, an Asian one, and it's absolutely amazing. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, there is a movement to uh, revive the ancient grains as yeah. well as to even enhance those flavors. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, right? So that sounds like it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, okay, and uh, so you have a very unique connection with Japan. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, uh, my wife is actually um, part Japanese. Her family, she still has family there. Um, her, I guess we'll start with her grandmother. Um, her grandmother was um, born in Argentina, but her father was um, the head That's of That's interesting. Yeah. Already. Yeah, so it was an arranged marriage. Her, her, her grandmother's father was a head of the Japanese consulate. And it was arranged marriage with a um, someone in the royal family of Argentina, and so she was born in Argentina. Oh. And from there, she moved to. So the she's uh, so the grandmother is a child of immigrants. Yes. That was like I think early, well, early nineteenth yes. century. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of Japanese people. Yes. To look for something mm -hmm. like that was a very uh, hard time in Japan mm -hmm. economically. So that's a very, very interesting yeah, start. It's even when you go back farther. Her like great grandfather um, was a samurai, and he converted to Christianity, Whoa. and he ended up being the first Methodist bishop in uh, Japan. Oh my god! <laughs> Let's <laughs> make a movie. <laughs> it's really cool to go and sit in her uh, dad's house and like look through all the old photos and. Wow. Uh, listen to him talk about it it's really really neat mm. but yeah so her grandmother was born in argentina from there she moved to mexico city um chile and i think well, uh, her husband okay her husband was so she hadn't met her husband yet okay they oh, moved they parents. moved back to uh, tokyo during world war ii okay her, so sorry i, no, I no keep interrupting but the <laughs> uh so the your wife's grandmother, yes. uh, born and raised in Argentina, mm -hmm. and got married and moved around for parents' job or... Well, yeah, so her her father was a Japanese consulate. Okay, wow. And so he was so over there, and then they would move him around South America. Mm. And then when World War II started, they called him back to Japan. Right. And so they moved back to Tokyo. Oh, interesting. And then that's where her grandmother met um, her husband. He was a writer for the Stars and Stripes, mm -hmm. and he was from Mexico. Okay. And he was a writer over there in Tokyo, and that's where they met. Wow. And then they, she immigrated back to the United States with her husband to uh, Austin, Texas. Oh, my God. How many <laughs> nationalities involved here? <laughs> yeah. There we go. Japanese, uh, Argentinian, 
and Mexican. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then all those, uh, all the they other, carried yeah. around all those cultural oh, yeah. experiences. That's what I love about like going through old um, recipes. You can see influences from all over South America, Mexico, um, Japan. Right. So, and then that's your wife's grandparents. Yes. Yes. So to get through to you, <laughs> yeah. what's the story? <laughs> well, so you know, they moved to Austin, Texas, um, and then she, they had kids, and um, he became a professor at UT, and he was um, started the Mexican American Folklore um, Center there, and then you know, she had, or yeah, her, her grandmother had um, my wife's dad there, and she was born in Austin. And when I was my first year in college, I wasn't enjoying school very much. So I, I took a road trip to Austin, Texas, and um, just to stay for the weekend and I ended up staying mm. for 11 years. Oh, wow. What I, happened? <laughs> I just enjoyed it so much. I just loved the, the people there. It was a big city, small town feel. Um, I loved the food. Mm. I loved the barbecue culture. Um, I just loved everything, but it just felt like home. Mm. And that was before Austin became yeah. Austin. Like when I moved to Austin, it was right before it kind of started to explode as a right. culinary destination. Mm. Right. So, South by Southwest. Was yes. <laughs> Big it, bomb, wasn't, I guess. it wasn't crazy. Um, there's a lot of um, festivals there that are so big now. I mean, I remember going to one festival and you could get in with a canned good mm. now tickets are you know 100 bucks a pop <laughs> <laughs> right so so then um your wife influenced you currently terms like you know like she i don't know how much so she's a eighth it, Japanese, yeah right it's funny um her dad influenced me more when i met my wife um she wasn't a very adventurous eater mm. she would eat stuff at home and I'd have to like trick her, talk her into going to other places. So I think I've kind of broadened her horizon more than she has me. But um, yeah, her father and I really hit it off over food, and he started sharing with me his mother's um, recipes, mm. and I would cook them for him, and he would get all sentimental, like, "Man, this tastes just like my mom used to make." Wow! So I just really enjoyed like going through the old recipes mm. and. Um, that's think, a very, very responsible cooking. Yes, yes. <laughs> you can mess with the memories. Oh, so. I mean, I remember the first few times I made him some stuff. I was very, very nervous. Mm. Um, but yeah, so then I became like the uh, family, um, the head of the family parties, and when we'd cook, and he'd have his family over. And I think their big thing they'd cook a lot was the skiaki. Mm. So we'd have everybody over, and I'd be at the table, putting everything together, and um, yeah, it was just fun, right. a lot of fun. So Emily. What do you think about your dad's cooking, Japanese cooking? <laughs> it's really good. Yeah? So, he's talented. So, what's your favorite? I don't know. <laughs> there too many? Yeah. All right. Probably <clears throat> sweet and sour pork. Yeah. That was the first time. I didn't know. I don't know the Japanese name for it or what dish it is. But she It's called subutan. <clears throat> yeah. yeah it's, it's, I think, came from China, like kind yeah. of Chinese influence. Yes. But it's what, Japanese. It's, it's awesome. And it was so simple. And um, I remember the first time I cooked it, you didn't saute the vegetables. You just kind of threw everything in and let it cook. And I was really freaked out about it. But it's just so simple and amazing. Right. And that the vinegar really yeah, the cuts vinegar, through yeah. the fat. The soy sauce, vinegar, and sugar, and you just let it cook, and the fattiness of the pork, it, that's one of, like, one of my favorite dishes. I can eat it right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe next time I visit. Uh, oh, definitely. <laughs> Good. Also, off yeah. menu item. Okay, so, yeah, so, um, so that's how you basically learned Japanese basic cooking. Yeah, from looking through her... Um, her recipes and uh, just kind of studying online and buying books and reading and trial and error. And the first restaurant I worked at outside of culinary school was um, uh, Maiko in Austin. And I learned a lot there mm. um, from the chef there. He had worked at uh, Uchi and some other places oh. and just sitting there and watching him and learning. And that's when I fell in love with uh, tempura and my wife really can't eat it anywhere else except for Uchi because oh. there's not very many places that do it properly. Mm. And um, that's what I love about Japanese cuisine is like the simplicity of it. But if it's done correctly, 
It's absolutely amazing. Right. And to get there, you have to oh, it's just, <laughs> razor yeah. sharp. And yeah. <laughs> years and years. And that's another thing I really enjoy about just the dedication to their craft and what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you go to Japan too? Or? I've been once. Uh, we took a trip to Vietnam last year and we had a little stopover in Japan. And mm. I want to go longer but my wife would have killed me if I went without her because <laughs> she hasn't been yet and she, she wants to go and see her family and there's a it's actually a statue of her great-grandfather in Tokyo wow yeah really and her I think her aunt and uncle took a picture in front of it so we want to go and take a picture in front of it mm, yeah, it's gonna get the wet carpet yeah wow <laughs> amazing All right, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about how Mark incorporates Japanese elements in southern dishes, naturally. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Koin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Gatema, and my guest today is Mark Crumpy, who is a chef and owner of Southern Hospitality Kitchens in Lafayette, Louisiana. He manages four kitchens in the beautiful South. So um, I heard that you were already into Japanese culture before you even you met your wife. Mm-hmm. So how do you did you become interested in Japanese culture? Um, it started... When I was in, man, this is like the fourth grade, um, my uh, stepdad was going to take a job in Denver, and he took me up there to look at houses, and we ate at this little sushi bar in downtown Denver. And it was like I was just mesmerized watching him sit there and prepare the fish and cut it, and him talk about all the stuff he had behind the sushi bar and that was the first time I saw and tried gooey duck and um, it was just very interesting to me and um, so from then on I just would read books about Japan and the history and um, I just fell in love with the culture and cuisine Mm. and I never thought I'd be cooking it at one point I just enjoyed eating it (laughs) (laughs) right well that's interesting Um, so that's very like you said earlier, it's a very uh, kind of a spiritual yeah. attitude towards oh, yeah. food and mm-hmm. by the Japanese, especially sushi chefs, I think. Oh, so. yeah. I, I don't know. Going to some, like, that place or somewhere that they um, put so much love and uh, dedication into it, it just feels different when you eat the food. Mm. You can feel their passion for it and their dedication. Right. Um, also, I think there is a very strict culture in the kitchen oh, yeah. and you have to be like that oh, like yeah. In martial arts, <laughs> yeah. yeah i think uh it's, it still continues that way uh-huh. i think but uh so you said earlier you know before the break uh, so japanese food is special to you because like craftsmanship you said yeah yeah so can you talk a little more about that um uh, as opposed like as to my cooking or give me anything um yeah well yeah i mean i just i I just really um, admire and enjoy um, how much time and effort they put into m- making something so perfect or mm. as close to perfection as they can be. And um, so uh, I just, 
enjoy sitting in a kitchen and working on something over and over again and trying to get it as perfect as possible and um, watching someone eat that and kind of feel it and understand it at the same time. Mm. Um, it's, I don't know, it's just like a beautiful thing. Mm, right. And also I think uh, a lot of people like like shift knives. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I understand it because I would never ever be able to make this precious knife. Like, yeah. You know, like <laughs> nothing. It's, it's like worshiping this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you know it becomes part of your hand. Yes, I love knives and I really enjoy um, sharpening. That's like one of my favorite things to do in the kitchen and oh, really? kind of calms me down and focuses me and... Um, yeah, I probably have way too many knives. <laughs> <laughs> How many do you have? Um, man, I one, two, three, probably ten or twelve. I've collected them over the years. Mm. David uh, gave me one. Okay. Uh, when I became a, uh, yeah, when I became an Oracing ambassador, um, my wife this year got me one. Um, she got me an appointment with Phillips Forge to make one for me. I've never had one made like personally for me. Mm, wow. So it's fun going through the process of picking out the metal and the wood for the handle and everything. Oh, wow. And so it'll be, um, he's making me like a 12 inch uh, sushi knife. It'll be mm. my first one like that. Can I get a little nerdy? Like, yeah. you know, you can just choose the ingredients. So basically, so what's the difference between Japanese and Western knives? Um, so I think it's the, the main difference I see is the, hardness and softness of the steel mm. like i have a have a um, german knife that i've had since culinary school and that's what i use to butcher whole animals and cut through bones and it holds its edge for much longer it's very very hard steel as opposed to all my japanese knives i have to sharpen them much more frequently mm, because it's soft yeah they'll use like a a soft steel in the middle and then a harder one on the outside mm. so your edge you can get razor sharp but it dulls much more quickly than say like a german steel mm. so in other words the more you take care of it yes it's like reli reliable exactly friend. yeah right and i would notice that the first sushi place i worked in you'd see the sushi chefs sharpen their knives every day before the shift mm, okay and it's so you know western knives are two-sided right like yeah so you have like the western edge which is the two-sided or you can do just the right or left mm. so you do you so, prefer one-sided or two-sided? So I like two-sided for like my everyday stuff, but I like one-sided for when I'm cutting fish and stuff like that. And I just started uh, the subiki technique where you cut the scales off the fish mm -hmm. for dry aging. Mm. And so um, I like to use like the one-sided knife. Mm, chef because... I've been talking to does it a lot. He had told me about it. Uh, and, um, so because you can make it more thinly yeah more thinly and keep that um nice straight line all the way through mm. it's easier to kind of keep it straight as you go across the fish right yeah. oh that's like fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the best gadget <laughs> um okay so uh so i was lucky to have an opportunity to visit uh your restaurant social sun table and bar uh last year as a judge of a culinary competition and you are one of the finalists to cook multiple creative dishes. Mm -hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised um, how skillfully you incorporated Japanese elements in your American style cooking. For example, you cured uh, salmon tail with koji, which is a foundational ingredient for Japanese cuisine to uh, increase umami and sweetness. And you made peanut miso, which had deep sweetness, nuttiness, and some tropical Fruit note, and I, I the secret was using yeah. I think, and uh, also you flavored salmon loin with miso, and the result was amazing. Yeah. So how did you uh, learn to use Japanese ingredients and techniques like to kind of weave weave into yeah yeah other elements? Um, it's just a lot of trial and error and um, getting lucky. First noticed how you could do it when I went to Uchi in, in Austin and how well he did it. So I just, when I would eat a southern dish and I'd think about it, like, well, I could use, you know, miso to bring up the salinity of the dish and also enhance umami um, or, you know, curing stuff with koji. Um, there's just a lot of, you know, trial and error and working on it. And um, 
just kind of trying to enhance my stocks and broths with um, like kombu or bonito and stuff like that instead of the traditional stuff we'd use around um, the south. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, the way you use them, Japanese elements, tend to be very subtle. Yeah. And you don't know yes, by exactly. looking at it. Yeah, that's another thing where kind of where we live. People, it's hard for them to get and try different new things. So I have to sneak them into dishes. And <laughs> I can't even I can't even put them in the description of the dish or they won't like they won't order it. So I've gotten really good at sneaking something in and just to not to highlight that ingredient, but to add another level to the flavor. Mm, right. Um, I think thanks to the ramen boom, I think a lot yeah. of chefs, Western chefs, learned how to make dashi. Yes. And I keep hearing, what is that? That's the secretly, there's dashi yeah. in it. So that's uh, the umami. Yeah. Enhancer. Oh, yeah. We did, a, um, during the winter, we do a crawfish ramen. And um, Whoa. I make like a roasted crawfish dashi like from the shells and stuff of the uh, crawfish you can go wrong with that oh no it's really good (laughs) um we do like toasted rye noodles with that as well and then we'll use local vegetables um as kind of the garnishes and stuff like that okay so uh maybe you can give us some examples of dishes on your menu at uh, social southern table and bar uh that have japanese influence yeah so um probably the most popular one that we've had since we opened are our, our crab nachos with crab with a k we use kani sticks from japan okay so what's kani sticks <laughs> the uh the um the crab meat the crab sticks mm-hmm. that are actually not crab they're used they use different fish for that and um yeah it looks like crab because it looks like crab yes like red. <laughs> most sushi bars you go to if they say they have snow crab that's what they're using <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's open secret <laughs> yes um so we take that one and we mix it with our house made spicy mayo and um we put it on top of um, a little wonton chip that we make in house and then some yuzu guacamole mm. which we just use fresh uh avocados right. yuzu juice so instead of lime you use yeah. yuzu so what's what's the effect um, it, it, I feel like it uh, it brightens it and adds a tropical note to the creaminess of the avocado. And then it just goes really well with, I mean, people love those kani sticks and spicy mayo. Mm, <laughs> and then the, see the other one I was talking about, it was the crawfish ramen. Mm. We do the crawfish dashi. We do the toasted rye uh, ramen noodles. Wow. And we top it with like the sauteed crawfish and... Um, we do uh, the ajitomago, the uh, cured uh, eggs, and then different pickles and stuff that we get from our local farmers. Mm. And um, as far as other dishes, we change our menu quite frequently. So um, we do like the koji cured salmon mm. or miso rub salmon, stuff like that, kind of sneak it in there. Um, and I've actually put miso in our uh, gumbo before. Right. Well, by the way, that salmon dish, like miso salmon, yeah. is like miso caught all, all oh, over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But koji yeah. is kind of enhanced sweetness. Yeah, the koji adds a whole nother flavor to, especially that salmon dish, especially the working, um, just the fattiness and richness of that salmon. And mm. the, koji. the working is a natural, supernaturally farmed yes. salmon yes. and delicious. It's absolutely amazing. I, I never was really into salmon until I was able to try orking. It's mm. it's on a whole other level. Right. And I've, I've converted a lot of my customers. And um, I was a little afraid and apprehensive to put it on our menu because of the price point And are they going to pay more for this salmon as opposed to someone down the street? Mm. And um, it's... I've like tripled my sales on that salmon. Oh wow! Once they try it, they're uh, they're mm. hooked. Right, because you feel clean after tasting oh, yeah. the fat, which is yeah, precious. it's un- <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like when you break down a whole Ora King, and I'll I'll scrape the bones um, to make like spicy uh, salmon bowls and stuff like that. And if you leave the flesh on your cutting board and come back there's like a pool of fat just around it or like when you smoke it i had some when i was in new zealand and um it was smoked they wrapped it in butcher paper we had it all day with us we brought it back to the airbnb and we were gonna eat it and when we opened it 
there was just fat just through the butcher paper. It was like mm. when we'd be back home in uh, Texas and you'd have some brisket wrapped up in butcher paper and you go to open <laughs> it up. It was just like covered in grease. <laughs> wow, so full of omega-3. Oh, yeah. Nice. It's unbelievable. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah. This, so you said that you keep changing menu, like mm-hmm. seasonally or even more often. Yeah, seasonally or more often. Um, yeah, when whenever we have something on the menu and it's kind of going out of season or we want to change it up. We just, we print our own menus in house. So we just kind of change it up whenever we want to. It's hard to do where we live because people like what they like and they want to come back and they'll get upset if it's not there. So <laughs> we have like our staples and then we change like the rest of the menu. Whenever right. we well, that's like a it. happy problem. Yes, it is. Right. <laughs> that means you have very successful dishes. Yeah, we try. Yeah. So, but speaking of, you know, um, you have to, have seasonal ingredients to to keep the cost down as well as being sustainable yes. which i want to discuss so how do you become so sustainable oriented chef um uh, it was it, it was more about um wanting to help the local community and um small production artisans and farmers um and the quality of the product as well uh just getting it from the like produce, for example, getting it from a larger distributor, it it loses some of its flavor and the freshness, and you can tell that the product goes spoils much more quickly, mm. as opposed to getting it from someone local. It may be more expensive, but I have way less waste, and right. the freshness and the flavor comes through on the dish. Um, it's just hard educating the customer on why they're paying more for this lettuce on the salad as opposed to somewhere down the street that uses more commercially grown stuff. Mm, right. It's, if you know, compare, like side by side, oh, yeah. it's hands it, down. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, you'll definitely pay more for it. Um, mm. It's just hard getting them to that point. Right. <laughs> yeah, I used to buy a, a supermarket organic yeah. eggs, and then I happened to stumble onto really expensive farm eggs like oh, yeah. really like farmers yeah. deliver to my uh, nearby butcher i can't go back oh no it's like double the price yeah but do you know it's good for you the That's color so, is yeah. different and it's so worth it right we have a local farmer that delivers to us once a week all of our eggs and um we started off doing like part commercial eggs for some of our bigger stuff like all of our biscuits we make um and then we've just slowly gone to completely farm-raised eggs. And you can just tell the difference in the end product. Mm, right. Why bother eating food? Yeah. Because it's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, yeah. Um, so it's your, but you do global things. I was impressed. In, instead of importing, the purchasing, importing, imported miso. Yeah. You made, you mm-hmm. made like peanut miso. Yeah. yeah. That's how you be, it becomes. You try to be sustainable in terms. Yeah, of we try. To be, I try to be sustainable, and um, I'm trying to take more local ingredients and kind of give them a more global twist, or use you know other cultures' techniques on them, so mm. I can still be local and sustainable, but be able to use stuff from other countries. Right, and I, actually that inspires Japanese producers yes. too. <laughs> right. Yeah, like peanut miso is really interesting. Oh, yeah. I just love the richness of it. It's like super clean. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And we actually, I just planted my first yuzu tree mm. at wow. a social. Yeah. Right. Does it grow there? Yes, it's, it's blossoming right now. I was I was worried, but it loves where I put it. And um, it's got like 30 blossoms on it right now. I actually it fruited last year already. I was surprised it was the first year I put it in the ground and we got mm. like eight fruit off of it. That's interesting. I was always wondering why use Yeah. Is this a not available here? So Yeah, I can't find it anywhere. Um, towards the end of when I lived in Austin I'd start seeing it in a local grocery store every once in a while, but when it would come in you could get barely any juice from it because it was so old mm. the inside and oh, yeah. dehydrated and it was, but now that I know I can grow it in the south. I'm really excited. I'm going to plant some more. Mm. Wow. There could be a big boom of use it. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody wants it, but yeah. it's too expensive. Oh, I know. My um, Our friend, 
uh, Mary, she's a uh, half Japanese and she's always like bringing me different Japanese ingredients and wanting me to try. She makes her own udon and ramen and she got me hooked on uh, natto. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but natto, I think, you know, I had natto producers twice on this show, but by making natto by yourself, yeah. when, when you buy it here, it's frozen already. Oh, yeah. When I had it when I was in Japan, it blew my mind how much better it was <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah even i tried the same brand but it tastes so different. oh it's not the same over there it's it's weird the flavor the texture everything about it's different right it's, and I, I heard it i've never tried yet but the natto is not too hard to make yeah i don't think it would be right so look forward to your <laughs> <Yeah>. report <laughs> yeah i was curious you know like you have many local farmers to work with right so what are the examples of good farms that you love working with? So uh, there's there's one main one we work with is uh, Covirize um, Farms. Out, they're outside of New Orleans. But this thing I love about them is they have the stuff they farm as well as they do um, uh, pig farming. But they drive kind of down the Gulf Coast and up a little further. And they pick up from local farms on their route. Mm. And when they come to me... I mean, I can get, like, apples from North Carolina and different stuff along the Gulf Coast. Wow. And they go all the way to Houston. So that's what I really love about them. I can get stuff that's super, super local. And then I can kind of get stuff along the south and, mm. you know, below the Mason-Dixon line from them. Right. Yeah, what I heard about New York City farmer's market, before markets are set up, farmers didn't have any route to sell, even yeah. if they grow all those things they didn't have any manpower or marketing yeah that was the hard thing about us is you have all these local producers but um they can't get their product out there they don't have any delivery methods and distribution um that's what i like about covey rise and jv foods um they pick up from all these local producers and bring them to chefs Mm, nice yeah it's awesome wow okay and uh so also, I was very impressed that you have a donation program to support local nonprofit organization. And many restaurants may want to do it, but they don't because it's hard. So, yeah. So why do you think it's important to do that? Uh, it just goes back to helping support the community um, and give back. From, I mean, the community supports us, helps us pay our bills, helps me pay our employees who support their families. And, you know, it's just a big cir- circle um, mm-hmm. keeping the community together and just helping everyone we can. So we do, you know, special dinners. We'll give back um, portions of different um, items or dinners we do. Right now we're doing Hogs for the Cause, which is out of New Orleans, and it helps support uh, pediatric brain cancer. It's mm-hmm. a massive one. And us three are actually on a, a team together. Oh, and wow. It's a big, like, whole hog cook-off cool. competition. It's a lot of fun. Right. And, uh, yeah, so do you think it's um, it's hard to think of that kind of efforts in New York City because there's so many people, oh, so yeah. many <laughs> restaurants, so many charities. And is that Lafayette thing, like cultural, precious um, culture there? Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's just a big community there. And um, it's just like the friends you make and you want to support and help everyone that you can. And um, I can see how it would be hard in New York because there's so many people and so many things you could do or give back to. And, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be tough. Right. And this is the city where somebody talks to you like, what do you want? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't trust people. Yeah. And you can't trust, basically. <laughs> but, yeah, that's like sudden hospitality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, so finally, what's your plan? Plan. Um, I'd actually like to branch out of you know, Louisiana and go to some larger markets. Mm. Um, I'd love to bring social to larger markets. I have a lot of people that come in from bigger cities and like, Oh, we don't have anything like this here has this feel or, um, so I would love to bring social somewhere. And I've been secretly working on a Izakaya project just mm. kind of by myself drawing stuff and making menus. And I'd love to take socials like Southern feel and fuse it with the Izakaya, like, american sports bar type feel that makes sense yeah right what have you been doing you have the kind of business yeah, models exactly yeah because 
social, you know, we were the last five years, one of the best bourbon bars in America. Oh, wow. As far as my uh, other bars, I'm absolutely amazing. So I'd like to take those two things and kind of fuse them into a hezekiah type feel. Right. And also by expanding, you can try more local, different exactly. items. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're very curious, I yes. think. Yes. And experiment. Yeah. Yeah. So. I get bored easily. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So where can we find your social like um, So all the, I guess all the restaurants you can find on berealeatgood.com. And then you can follow me on Instagram. I'm a wandering chef. W-A-N-D-E-R-I-N-G-C-H-E-F. Cool. All right. So good luck. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great hopefully. seeing you again. Yeah, you're going to come back, maybe? Oh, yeah, I would love to. Right, definitely. and uh, maybe after a trip to Japan, oh, we discover yeah. more. Oh, yeah, that would be amazing. Right. All right, so thank you for joining us today, Mark and Emily. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics for guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or akikotehama.com. Japan News is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.